Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. It's a part of the battle that every one of us are currently involved in. There will come a time, though, when death will no longer be a factor, when these dominions, these authorities, these powers of the dark one will no longer be the the factor. But, beloved, that's after the resurrection. That's when this corruptible can't be corrupted anymore because I've, I've laid off this body of sin and death. I've, got, I've gained a new body. I've gained eternity now working within me. This all takes place when Jesus returns. Not only is the resurrection an element of our faith that we can't do without, it grants hope and demonstrates God's power. As a Christian, there is much more to be gained by belief than doubt in the resurrection. Pastor David explains that we'll be resurrected one day just like Jesus, and at that time, we'll be in God's perfect presence. With the pain and difficulty of this life, it brings reassurance to know that we serve a God who is bigger than anything we face and knows our every need. Now here's Pastor David with part three of today's message entitled, The Certainty of the Resurrection. Remember when the disciples gathered in the upper room, they were scared to death. They had the doors locked, the windows locked. They, they had chairs against the doors, you know, you know the whole thing. They, they were afraid of the Romans and the Jews to come in. And then suddenly what? The Lord appeared among them. And they were afraid because they didn't know what it was. And that's when Jesus said, no, it's me. It's me, man, you know, right here. I got flesh, I got bones. He, again, showed him his hands and his side. Did the same thing to Thomas a little bit later. Similarities, some sort of recognition, but different, different. Remember along the, sh- the seashore, the disciples were out fishing, and he calls out, hey, you guys caught anything? And suddenly it was John recognized, maybe he recognized his voice or something. He says, you know, that's the Lord. And then Peter jumps out of the boat again. I love the guy. He's always jumping out of the boat. I think more of us need to jump out of the boat, okay? There was... There was a difference, but yet there was a similarity. They, they ate with him. They walked with him. They spoke with him. He had a full and complete physical body and presence. He wasn't a spirit. Now, you need to understand, though, that there had been others who had returned from the dead. We look in the Old Testament, people risen from the dead. The prophets would, you know, again, call them up from the dead. Uh, uh, somebody was thrown on the bones of Elijah. They, they came back to life. We see in the New Testament, Jesus raising people from the dead. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That'd be a bummer to me, okay? If I'm dead four days, Lord, leave me dead, okay? Uh, I want to stay dead. I because you know what? When they're raised from the dead, it's different than resurrection. Because when you're raised from the dead, guess what? You've got to die again. 
So figure that out. I've been gone four days. Now I'm rising up, raising up again. Now I'm going to die again later on. I'm going to go through this whole process. When you're resurrected, you do not die again. No, you're resurrected for all of eternity. So we see that Old Testament, New Testament. We see the Gospels. We see it in the Acts. This act of physical life coming back, but then only to die again. Totally different. And resurrection is completely different. As Paul tells us later in this passage, that this corruptible, this decaying one, we put on then incorruption. That's what the resurrection does. It it gives us that incorruptible in our lives. This mortal putting on now immortality. I'll never die again when I'm resurrected. This is why Paul tells us here in verse 20 and in verse 23 that Christ is what? the first fruits. He's the first fruits. He's the first one to be resurrected, although there's going to be others that follow after him. Paul revisits this whole idea here when he says, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul speaks about that at length over in Romans chapter five. He brings to us the concept, the, the, the understanding of what is called original sin. Original sin. And people ask the question sometime, uh, am I a sinner because I sin, or do I sin because I'm a sinner? And the answer to that is yes, okay, because of both. You're a sinner because you sin, and you sin because you are a sinner. We, we are born under sin. It's called, the, the not, not to get too heavy on you here, but it's called the federal headship, okay? Adam is the federal, he is the representation of all humanity, and when Adam fell, all humanity fell with him. Another way of looking at it is the natural headship that genetically through Adam, sin entered into the world. Both of them are correct. As a matter of fact, uh, Matthew Slick, a guy that I've read for years and years, he's got a great website called C-A-R-M, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. Great place. If you've got questions, you can go on that website. He's got a lot of it covered. Just a really, really sharp guy. He explains this concept pretty quickly and simply. He talks about federal headship in a broad sense is a position that the male represents all of his descendants, represents them, okay? Just like he is the head of this house, a patriarchal type of a system. He represents, much like, again, our the president of the United States represents the nation, okay? Matthew goes on, he says, in the case of Adam, he was the federal head of mankind in that he represented mankind in the fall. We were in him, in his seed. We all fell, we fell in him. Likewise, Jesus is our federal head in salvation. He represented those of faith or his people on the cross, just as 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Federal headship, the authority to represent descendants, it's taught all throughout scripture. Adam was in authority when he fell. That is, we fell in Adam when he fell. And the only way for this to be possible is for him to have represented us just as Jesus represented us on the cross so that we live in Christ. 
To deny one is to deny the other. To deny that, that Christ did not, when he took my sin on the cross, I accept that absolutely. Then I also have to accept the fact that when Adam sinned, his sin also became my sin. Okay, both of them work together. There's another, that, that other parallel understanding, what I call the, the natural headship. Hodge in his outlines of theology talks about this real quick. Again, the federal headship of Adam presupposes or rests upon this idea of natural headship. He was our natural head, actually, before he was our federal head. He was doubtless made our federal representative because he was our natural progenitor and was so conditioned that his agency must affect our destinies. And because our very nature was on trial, typically, if not essentially, in him, Whatever, therefore, of virtue in this explanation, the natural headship of Adam may be supposed to contain the federal theory retains. Anyway, skip that because even as I'm reading it, I'm seeing glassy-eyed in front of me. The natural head, again, speaking of just genetically through Adam, also as a representative through Adam. So we've sinned on both sides. Both of them are correct. Both of them are biblical. That's why we read in verse 21, for since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, through Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So for you and I, this being made alive is the resurrection of our physical bodies with Christ as our first, our first fruit. So in verse 23, it says, but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, I love this, Paul brings out the fact, man, when he comes, those who belong to him, that's when the resurrection takes place. Paul tells us clearly that the resurrection of the believers will not happen until the Lord's return, when he comes. Then he goes on to speak of these end times, beginning in verse 24. He actually takes a slight detour here in in speaking about the resurrection to speak about the end of all things. Verse 24, he says, then the end will come. When when Christ returns and, and we're resurrected, then the end is gonna come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now you need to realize that when Christ was on the cross and he declared it is finished, there is a twofold understanding to that. The work of his for the Father, doing the Father's will, was finished. I've lived my life. But the other thing of that finish is the victory is finished, the battle, because with his death on the cross, he then gained victory over what? Sin and death. He gained the victory. But guess what? Sin's still here, right? Or is it just me that's still sinning? Death is still here. People still die. So what's the deal? He gained the victory over it, but why is there still sin and why is there still death? Because it's not until he comes at the end and he utterly destroys all dominion, authority, and power. Then there'll be no more death. Then there'll be no more sin at that point in time. He already stands. He is in power over every dominion, every authority, and every power. 
but they're still active in the world today. And it's not gonna be until the end when he utterly destroys these dominions, these authorities, and the powers that again, those will not be affecting our lives. I wasn't gonna say it, and but yet I feel really led to say it. One of the things that really bothers me right now in some circles of Christianity is when some of my brothers and sisters, in all sincerity, and I believe that they're being sincerity, they pray and say, you know, we're gonna take dominion over Satan or we're gonna take dominion over the spirit of whatever it is in the city or this county or in this school or we're, we're gonna take dominion of that and we claim that right here. You know what? I don't see that anywhere in scripture. And you know what? I don't see where it's ever worked. People say, we're gonna claim dominion over this authority in our city. Guess what? The next day, the city's still sinning. Guess what? The next day, there's still drug addicts on the street. No, the victory is there in Christ. But that dominion, that authority, that power is still gonna be working in this fallen world until at the very end when Christ comes and at that end, man, that's when Satan's gonna be bound. You, you're not gonna bind Satan. I'm sorry, you're not gonna bind Satan. I hear people pray that all the time and I just shake my head and think, let me know how that works out for you, okay? Tell me how that works out for you. Okay, let me move on. We continue to deal with these dominions, these authorities, these powers until Jesus comes. It's a part of the battle that every one of us are currently involved in. There will come a time, though, when death will no longer be a factor, when these dominions, these authorities, these powers of the dark one will no longer be the, the factor. But, beloved, that's after the resurrection. That's when this corruptible can't be corrupted anymore because I've, I've laid off this body of sin and death. I've, got, I've gained a new body. I've gained eternity now working within me. And this all takes place when Jesus returns. Then he puts all his enemies under his feet. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted, speaking of God. Okay, because God had the power to give Jesus the authority and the power to put all things under his feet. Verse 28, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also, catch this, the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. Who put all things under him? God the Father. That God may be all in all. The authority was given to Christ. It was delegated to him by the Father. It was through the power of the Father that the son was resurrected. All the work and the ministry of Jesus while on earth, all that's yet to be accomplished and will eventually culminate and come to a completion, all of that comes and points to the Father's greater glory. What's been granted to Christ by the Father is then gonna be laid back at the Father's feet as once again Christ shows his subjection to or his surrender to the Father's glory, so that God may be all in all. And those who are in the mindset of Jesus only, there's only Jesus, and Jesus is God, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is the Father, Jesus is, and there's nothing else. I, I don't know how they dance around verses like this, because there is the Father, there is the Son, there is the Holy Spirit, all of them working in harmony and union together, all to bring glory and honor so that God may be all in all. We, as a part of the new creation, guess what, gang? We're gonna be allowed 
to participate in that experience when at the very end, Christ lays all that at the Father's feet and the Father is glorified. And you know what? We're gonna be there. We're gonna be a part of that. In our resurrected body, they're ready as we enter literally into uh, eternity. And don't ask me after this what eternity is, okay? Because I don't know. It says we're gonna reign and rule. That's great. The Mormons figure they're gonna reign and rule on other planets. I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. I don't think it's comprehensible for you and I to really understand what eternity is gonna be. I think it's gonna be so magnificent, so absolutely mind-blowing that we can't even begin to comprehend what it is. Then we get to verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? Aren't you glad you're here tonight and somebody's gonna finally explain that verse to you? Brother Vic, could you come explain that verse to us, please? Yes. Yeah. Actually, there, there, there are literally, literally scores and scores of interpretations of what that, why Paul brings out this whole thing of baptism for the dead. The best, and I believe really and truly for, for me, the most accurate one is it surrounds the whole idea of the cultures, the culture that was going on during the time of the church there in in Corinth. Though the Greeks didn't believe in this afterlife, there were other cultures and subcultures around there that, that actually did, and they actually had these vicarious baptisms. They figured my, my loved one has died and I'm going to be baptized for them. Again, the, the Mormon church has picked up on that. They believe that you know they want to be baptized for all the family. Actually, it's a very pagan uh, idea and thought. It's not a Christian thought at all. Paul does not say, then why do we baptize for the dead? No, he says, why do they do that? We read about that not too far from Corinth was the center of this ancient mystery religion. Homer spoke about it. Cicero wrote about it. As a matter of fact, Cicero himself was an initiate of this mystery religion. Part of the rites of the initiation in this pagan religion was this washing, this purification uh, in the sea. And and again, if if you didn't have that purification rite, then you had absolutely no hope uh, to be able to experience any kind of a bliss in the life afterwards. Another writer of the time, uh, Orphica, writes about vicarious participation in these mysterious baptisms of the time. And again, given the propensity of, of the Corinthians to distort these kind of things and to twist them around, they probably actually had brought into the church these baptisms for the dead. And, and again, just the bizarrity. This is the only place you're going to find it in Scripture. It's a bizarre thing. We read elsewhere that why are we baptized? Because I'm testifying that I've made a statement or I've made a commitment of my life to Jesus Christ. That's why I'm getting baptized. And so baptisms for the dead, that just doesn't work for anything. I don't care where you look, what you pull it out of. It just doesn't work for anything at all. Makes it very clear, again, what he's defending here is the idea and the thought of life after. In, in essence, he's saying, why do these, even these pagan guys over here, they believe in the afterlife. They're, they're baptizing people for the dead. They believe in the afterlife. 
because there is one. And that's what the resurrection is all about. And then in verse 30 and on, he says, why else would I go through all that I've gone through? Verse 30, he says, why, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is that to me? If the dead don't rise, man, let's eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. Paul tells him, what's the use of living a life dedicated to Christ if that's all there is? If this is all there is, there's, there's no hereafter. There, there's no resurrection. There's no eternal life. Paul, those who share their faith, the, the other apostles, uh, those that were moving out and ministering the truth of the gospel during that day, they risked everything they had. That's why I ask you that question at the very beginning. What are you willing to risk for the resurrection? Because I'm going to tell you, those in, in that time, in that place, in that century, they were often arrested. They were beaten. They imprisoned. Hosts of other atrocities committed against them. Why? Because they believed in the resurrection. And they knew that men would one day stand before an almighty God as their judge over their life. And if they didn't go out and share the gospel with them, then men were going to perish for all of eternity because they so knew and believed and lived the fact and the truth of the resurrection. It was so real to them. They placed everything that they had on the line because they knew that some are gonna be resurrected to everlasting life. Some are gonna be resurrected to everlasting torment. What does the resurrection mean to you? How important is it to you? Do you know that there's an eternity that your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors are going to stand facing eternity. The losses Paul experienced couldn't even be compared to the weight of glory that was before him as he remained faithful and true to the calling of God in his life. He remained faithful and true because he knew the resurrection was true. If the resurrection weren't true, considering all the ramifications that he spoke about there at the beginning, he might as well live like the Epicureans. Hey, let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But Paul knew better. He knew that we as believers... We need to be careful how we live. We need to be careful who we hang out with. We need to be careful what impacts our lives. Are we letting the culture so impact us that suddenly I'm moving further and further away from the truth because I'm getting so comfortable with the culture? We're going to close this part here in verse 33. He says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness. Do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Wow. Just quit going back into the culture. You've been saved out of the culture. There's some of your friends, some of your family, some of your neighbors that don't know Christ. And he says, I speak this to your shame, Pastor David. How much I let the culture impact my life parallels or is fully determined the amount of how much Christ and the gospel is not impacting my life. The more this impacts, the less the truth impacts. The more the truth impacts, the less I'm going to allow the culture to impact. And you know what? 
And the more the truth impacts my life, the more concerned I'm going to be with my friends, my neighbors, my loved ones. We're so glad you joined us today on The Open Word for Pastor David Landry's verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. You can find more messages from Pastor David and information about The Open Word by visiting our website, theopenword.com. If you're looking for a home church and are in the Casa Grande area, why not join us for a time of worship and Bible study? Calvary Chapel Casa Grande has services each Sunday at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on Wednesdays and Saturdays. You can find location information and directions by going to theopenword.com and following the links to the church homepage. Now here's Pastor David with some information on how you can help support the ministry of The Open Word. Hey, I love being able to share the Word of God with you through this radio ministry. Radio programs like The Open Word are wonderful tools that God uses to advance His kingdom here on earth. But as with any ministry, there are expenses. I know God is blessing His children through The Open Word, And God has given us a vision to see this ministry expand and reach even further. Would you prayerfully consider financially supporting The Open Word? Log on to theopenword.com and simply click on the support option to help us continue to grow. Thanks, Pastor David. That's all the time we have for today. But join us again as we continue digging deeper into the book of 1 Corinthians, right here on The Open Word.